This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Well, greetings and hello. And welcome to the afternoon here on uh, R On a pretty nondescript Melbourne afternoon, it must be said. Pretty ordinary out there. So hopefully you're inside, somewhere warm, somewhere nice, somewhere cosy, somewhere comfortable. Eat It is the program you're listening to. Uh, Matt Stedman is my name. Flying solo this week, as Shane just alluded to. So, Cam, you know what? He's actually just having a very well-deserved week off. So, if you're listening, Cammy, hope you're well and looking forward to uh, having you back in the studio as normal next week. Uh, but I'm still here, and of course, the show will go on. Um, actually, a rather good show it'll be too. So, the main part of today's show will be actually a rerun of an interview we recorded a few years ago now with a bloke by the name of Joel Salatin from Polyface Farm in Virginia, United States. Now, Joel has authored many, many books. He's uh, appeared in food documentaries. He also now lectures across the world. But primarily, Joel is a farmer first and foremost. In fact, he actually describes himself as a lunatic farmer. Um, the guiding philosophy behind his life's work at Polyface is to change the way we think about large-scale food production. Put simply, he reckons that if we don't change the way we produce our food on a mass scale, we'll continue to damage both our bodies and the planet as a whole. Now, in a rather lengthy interview, we explore these ideas and we chat to Joel about how he started out as a farmer, um, also the effects of commercial food production on us and our environment, uh, some long-term economic changes and what we can expect in the future, and also what large food producers actually do to the food they sell to us to eat. So quite a wide-ranging interview there, um, as we say, recorded a few years back. Uh, also on the show today, we're going to have an up-to-date market report with John at the Vic Market, only recorded a few days back, so uh, very recent there, and a couple of music tunes too, just to take us through till 1pm. Uh, so, how does that sound? Stick with us, I would say to you. I'm just going to uh, get some uh, mortgage ready to pay here, and uh, we'll be going to market straight after this. John, a very good afternoon to you. How are you? I'm very, very good, considering this morning I was calm. Mm. And now I'm running too hot. Yeah. So, typical Melbourne. Well, it's the thing about this time of year, isn't it? It's sort of like, it's very, very changeable. But yeah, uh, that is. we're seeing a change in the fruit and the veg that are coming here. I've just sort of wandered through and picked up a couple of things. I've got these beautiful jewels. The cannoli bean. What colour? What colour? Well, they're magenta. A splash of magenta and cream. Uh, and then inside, they're like... I don't know, they're like jewels, they're like opals. They are, and, and this, this is a beautiful bolotti. It's um, the harder variety of bolotti. Um, not my favourite because it's a little bit more acidic than the other variety. Did I call it a cannelloni? Yes, I did. you did. Yeah, bolotti, excuse me. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, good. Um, if you eat one of these raw, I wouldn't suggest you eat more than one because it can be very astringent, but it's got a peanutty flavour. Yes. But when you cook them up, they're so sweet. Mm. And, and if you cook them with a pasta or throw them in a minestrone, they really, really pick up the dish that you're making. And if you've never actually had the dish pasta fagioli, um, I suggest you have a look at it because it's one of the greats of the Italian cucina. And I would dare say it's something that either you've had already or you'd be looking forward to it. Wouldn't I be right in that? Oh, definitely. And these fresh beans are much different than the beans you get in a can. Yeah. The canned beans are good, don't get me wrong, but once you've eaten fresh bolotis, you'll never eat canned beans again. Mm. The, the uh, intensity of flavour and the juiciness and softness of them when you cook them is unbelievable. The silkiness of them. Okay, so they're around. How much are these things? Uh, at the moment, we're running about $10 because um, 
uh, it's been a, a funny season for them. They, they haven't been dirt cheap this year. Mm. This is still a local crop. Later on, we'll get them out of um, places like um, Bundaberg and um, Gympie and places like that that come down very fast on the truck and do, they come down fresh. Do they actually grow down south here? Can you? Oh, yeah, they grow. Um, there are many varieties we grow down here in Victoria. My father-in-law had some in a garden, which we called the pygmy plants because... Um, the, the beans are about 10 centimetres long and the plant's only 6 centimetres high. Wow, really? So, yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But, but the beans are touching the ground. That's how small the plant is. And then there are varieties. They're, they're runners and you put up the bamboo sticks and they run up the stick and you pick the beans all yeah. up and down the plant. Yeah, okay. We could call it maybe the T- Toulouse-Lautrec plant. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, let's not go into that. Probably get into a bit of trouble. It's, uh, oh, it is Sunday like, afternoon yeah, uh, after all. Has it been cold enough for us to eat Brussels sprouts? It has. Sprouts? That's it why has. I put them on. I've been yeah. saying to you, I will not put them on unless they're very, very good. Mm. Because when it's cold, they grow beautifully. They don't need to put many, if anything, chemicals on them. Um, earlier on, because it's hot and uh, there are bugs around and fungus that can grow overnight, they put uh, all the pesticides and antifungals on them and you wouldn't want to eat them. Right. Even though they look beautiful and you can't taste it, I still don't want to die young. It's a bit cosmetic. Okay, and it's a funny thing. These things, Brussels sprouts are such a polarising thing. Either people really, really love them or um, just run a million miles away from them. Yeah, but the ones that run a million miles have never had them cooked properly. Um, the other night on TV, I was told that they cut them in half and throw them in the fry pan. Well, you know, you're going to get a very, very intense flavour. Mm. Um, going to be crunchy. I don't know if the, the real flavours of the Brussels sprout had come out. We boil them in a lot of water. We break off most of the green leaves, cut across in the back. Yeah. And uh, then we mash them like uh, a puree. And we put butter or olive oil if you have to be good. <laughs> and all the sulphur comes out of it when you do that. Yeah. And I've told very uh, a lot of my customers to do that and they enjoy it like that. But what about, okay, so here's another thing that you can do. Something in the middle here, John. Um, you, I cut them in half, take off most of the green leaves, um, fry them a little bit um, so they get a little bit of colour, and then steam with a little bit of butter. So a little bit of water, a little bit of butter, and then they just steam through. The colour intensifies, and um, they're nice like that. Yeah, yeah, I've had them like that, and someone else did them for me one day. They... Did them, like you said, first in a pan, and then they shoved them in the oven with um, all sorts of magical stuff on the top, and, and the flavour was good. Mm. Yeah, don't I get... love Brussels sprouts. Me too. Uh, this place is called Tomato City, and you've just shown me a beautiful tomato here. It is. What, what, what is this? What are we looking at? This is a Doncaster tomato. Now, also, it's, I should, brought it out for you for a twofold effect. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Now, because we were talking about uh, things changing before, uh, this is a summer crop tomato. Yes. And, you know, we're very autumn now. And um, cold nights, the, t- the air sits on top of the tomato, the sun comes out in the morning, frazzles the water, we get cracks in the skin which heal up, we get black dots on the tomato which is only on the outside. doesn't look pretty. But when I've cut this open, this is, this is the beautiful <gasps> yeah. red colour. Look at the jelly there. Not a real lot of seeds and jelly, a lot of flesh in the middle. What's the jelly telling you? Uh, that, it, that it's still alive, the tomato. Um, that's where a lot of the flavour is. A lot of people, um, when they're cooking, squeeze all that out and you lose all your flavour. Yeah, that's that top note. It's sort of like it's getting towards like what the tomato leaf smells and tastes like, doesn't that's it? That's right, yes. I can smell that. And also, when we're looking, we're looking at that gel. 
that is between you know the seeds and the rest of the fruit because it is a fruit um, it, that reminds me the same thing as when you show me really beautiful green beans and That's they right. ha- and it's got that gel as the well vibrancy mm. in the middle yes yeah so it, again this is all about what you do you you, well, you're not going to cut John's tomatoes in half because he might not like that. He might do it if you ask him nicely, but it's about using all your senses when you go shopping. Yeah? Oh, definitely, and, and you mm. can't always look for pretty stuff because mm. sometimes the pretty ones have got no flavour. I've yes. got a, a new season tomato here that's come out of South Australia, grown in a glass house. It's a beautiful tomato. Look at it in the sun. Yeah. It's nice, um, shiny, firm, but not a very intense flavour yet. It's... Um, Still a little, a little bit too early for that sort of tomato. Gotcha. Um, what's going on? Pick of the market, change of seasons. Um, well, a bullotti is a very good buy because you can either make a soup or a minestrone or you can stew them up and serve them beside a steak yes. or even beside a barbecue chop. Yeah. Uh, that's what we did Anzac Day. Oh, yeah, well, you told me about that great barbecue. Yeah, yeah, that was and, and the rest of the listeners. Yeah. Now, green beans and peas are a little bit there. They're $11, $12 a kilo. Um, we're getting towards the end of the Victorian crop. We're praying that the Queensland crops will come on okay, so mm. the prices will go down again. Uh, last of the Victorian grapes, unfortunately. Yep. Cauliflowers have come back to civility again. Uh, you can pay anything from 3 to four fifty. Yeah. Hey, mind you, when they were $7, people were still buying them. They must taste better when they're at that price. Because yeah, I, I always say, if it's very dear, buy something else. Yeah. Um, artichokes are in. I saw some artichokes. Yeah, I got artichokes uh, a little bit dearer today, two thirty each. I had some last week. I sold for two dollars, but they are very big and heavy. Um, big, thick stems, about two centimeters across. Whoa. You peel that back and you cook that with the artichoke. So you know you can stew them up with a little bit of potato, mm. um, raw beans if you got some in the freezer because it's not available yet. Yeah, and you get that beautiful dish that's good for the heart and soul. And the liver as well. Definitely. Is, uh, is very, very nice. Okay, so, uh, yeah, artichokes are around. Grapes get into them while they're around. Pumpkin's brilliant at the moment. We've got beautiful um, Japanese or Kent if you go to a supermarket. Yeah. We've got the grey skin. We've got the butternuts. They're all ripe, all very orange when you cut them in half. Time to either make a soup. Uh, Luke just bought five butternuts. He's going to make a big soup and freeze it. Or we've been baking it and steaming it with the potatoes. Beautiful. Hey, dig this. Roasted like this. This is sort of um, pumpkin Vietnamese style. Get a Kent pumpkin, cut it into wedges. You make a, a marinade of fish sauce, brown sugar, and some long chili just chopped up in it. Brush that on the top of it, put it in the oven, cook it down, and you can sort of baste it as it cooks, and it's, it, it smells. Oh, and there's garlic in there too. Yeah, Sorry, there's good. garlic as well, and that's really good. Have you ever had pumpkin boiled in coconut milk with chicken wings? No. You want to try, mate? That sounds good. Oh, I had some Filipino friends. They do it. It's beautiful. Yeah, okay. I'll have to find the recipe and do it, and we'll talk about it. Yeah, that sounds like a, a, a really, really good thing. Um, anything else so far we've done fruit? Oh, eggplants seem to be really good at uh, the moment. Eggplants jumped a little bit this week because we're at the tail end of the Mildura crop. Yeah. Queensland ones will start any day now, and they'll be dying a dozen again. But they've been really nice. We've been slicing them and um, flouring them and frying them, and, you know, not good for my cholesterol, but hey, yeah, I only live once. once. And <laughs> I've had the beautiful big white zucchini. We've been doing that as well. We've oh. been battering them and frying them. What's so special about white zucchini? Uh, the white zucchini can be a little bit sweeter. Yeah. Um, 
than a green zucchini. Sometimes a green zucchini can be very bitter, yeah. and it, that really comes out when you, you batter them and fry them. The white zucchini are always sweeter. The only problem is with some of the varieties of the white zucchini, they don't keep as well. Yeah, right. Uh, so you have to use them within three or four days. Uh, and in the heat, in the middle of summer, it's not worth buying them because they go yellow while you're looking at them. It's a bit like a white onion in a way, isn't it? Same yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, that's um, right. Isn't that great? We're all still learning stuff from you, John. Always good to see you. We'll see you very, very soon. Thanks for your time. All right. Thank you. All the best. Ah, 12.20 here on Triple FM, right on the nose. Eat It is the program. Matt Stedman, my name. Flying solo, uh, as mentioned. Hope you're well. Hope you like the Mark Report. Anyway, uh, the bulk of the show, the main part of the show, uh, is coming up. And a couple of years ago now, we spoke to uh, Joel Salatin about his life's work as a farmer on the farm. In fact, it was um, sort of around the time of the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, as you'll, um, as you'll hear throughout the interview. Anyway, Cam started off by asking... Um, Joel, about how he started out with life on the farm back as a kid in Venezuela. Yeah, I was just four, yeah. and our family was um, was essentially walking away from, from a farm in Venezuela, South America, where Dad had been for 14 years, and um, the plan was to have a dairy and a, a chicken uh, farm. Mm. But um, in the in the uh, coup of Perez Jimenez in 1959, um, we were, you know, we were a prime target for the guerrillas, the revolutionaries, whatever. Time to go. Time to go. <laughs> Pretty much it so we basically yeah. fled the back door as the guerrillas came in the front door and lost everything and wow. came came back to the States and uh, and started over. In in Virginia. And then so you, you started on this place which has become the Polyface Farm, mm-hmm. which has become, I would have to say, probably one of the most famous farms in America at this stage. Would you – you'd have to agree. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. We're, we're, we've become a – a mecca of sorts for the whole sustainable food movement mm. and and anybody interested in the in ecological farming uh, nutrition soil health um, absolutely we we have become a destination uh, location for that so how did it happen that you became someone who so swims against the current of the agro industrial business yeah well you know what's funny is uh, i don't have a conversion story because i was born weird what spoke to me was was my grandfather and my dad um, yeah. my grandfather was a charter subscriber to rodale's organic gardening and farming magazine when it first came out in what 1948 49 and dad got his you know conservation ecological ethic from his dad and i got it from dad and so um, so, you know, my, my grandfather and father were, were way ahead of their time in, in, in taking a stand for, um, you know, for more natural methods, ecological methods. Um, Real food? Yeah. I mean, my grandfather, um, I remember his compost pile to this day. He had this massive compost pile. He had, he had an octagonal chicken house. And it had finishing nails about 18 inches above the floor, and he would grow big uh, sugar beets and mangles. And in the wintertime, he would skewer those sugar beets on his finishing nails from the root cellar so that the chickens could have fresh vegetables in, in the wintertime when the grass was dormant up in Indiana. Those, those were very fond memories of mine uh, of, of seeing that kind of husbandry and caretaking of of the earth and um and, and stewardship and stewardship That's and a big so word, isn't it? Yeah. It, it is indeed and um and so what was interesting was my grandfather in indiana um his place was was a place of abundance for me as a child it was a place of abundance you know he had he had uh, these 
three um, three sides of this huge, huge garden were a tea trellis grape arbor. And so we would go up there, you know, and I was, what, six and seven years old, and these grapes were, you know, bouncing against my head, you know. And, oh, it was just this. <laughs> and at home, the farm that we bought um, in, in, in the Shenandoah Valley, we bought it because it was the cheapest, most eroded, um, gullied farm in the entire region. Was it really? And, yes. and, and what had made it that way? 150 years of tillage, of uh, row cropping, grain cropping, when the Shenandoah Valley was the breadbasket of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, this was originally, this was the tall grass prairie of the uh, eastern United States. In fact, the first settlers in the, my wife, uh, her, her genealogy goes way back farther than mine in the valley, uh, several generations. And she actually, her family actually has letters um, from the, some of the first um, German settlers who came into the valley who wrote letters home and said, we rode all day, and everywhere we rode, we could take the grass and tie it in a knot above the horse's saddle. Above the above horse's the, saddle? Yeah, so we're talking about, you know, eight-foot eight foot, uh, tall grass prairie. This was Sounds like Rogers and Hammerstein, corns uh, as high as an elephant's eye. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> and, and so what happened, here came, here came the British, the Swedes, the, the uh, Germans, and, yeah. and the French, and from the temperate areas of Europe, the arable, you know, arable temperate, mm. and, um, and they, they plowed up this, this uh, prairie um, and, and exposed that soil to much more rugged climatic conditions than what have been Europe used to. Yeah, yeah, right. Sure. I mean, you know, London, a hot day is 80 and a, and a cold day is uh, 40. Uh, where we are, we have temperature extremes from a zero Fahrenheit to a hundred Fahrenheit, and and we don't have um, you know a misty, moisty morning and foggy was the weather like in Wales. Um, you know, w- we have uh, the thing around us is in the in the summertime we're always just uh, one toad strangler away from a drought. That's a, toad, what's a toad strangler? Well, when the rain comes so he- so uh, fast and heavy that it, yeah. dr- it drowns the frog. That's a toad strangler. Toad strangler. That's a toad strangler. It's like a downpour. <laughs> yeah. Got to watch out for yeah. that. You've been there, well, since 1961. One of the things that started you on the road to where you are now was the fact that before you knew it, all of a sudden there was a whole bunch of government interference, wasn't there? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, for right from day one, we wanted a direct market. And, uh, and we saw, I mean, dad, dad was a, by, by profession, he was an economist. And he realized very early on that a small farmer can't compete at the commodity level where the margins are so small. Mm. A small farmer has to has to um, value add has to value add yeah. and, and and become that notorious middleman that makes all the profits right. and wear all the different hats, you know, and 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 do the marketing, the the uh, salesmanship, the mark, the. Um, uh, the processing and all those kinds of so th- that's the road that we started down. Well, as soon as you start down that road, you begin running afoul, uh, no pun intended, of the food police, um, who who are under this mentality that a farm uh, today in in our culture, you know, a farm is just considered a, a raw producer of ingredients to feed. The big multinational corporations, which then value add them into Twinkies and Cheerios and, you know, uh, McNuggets. Cocoa Pops. Yeah, McNuggets, Cocoa Pops, whatever. Yeah. And so, so this, this on farm, uh, you know, the, the community cannery, the, the, essentially the embedded industry, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, mm-hmm. uh, that used to be embedded in the farm, in the rural culture, has now industrialized in scale 
away from the residential, and we have what we call a economic apartheid. Yeah, okay. And, yeah. and to, to where we have the residents over here, the commercial district over here, hamburger joints over here, the um, you know the the textile companies are over here, and and there's no connectedness of, of any of those sectors. And so as we begin this down this pathway, then we, we hit, well, well, you're a farm. You can't butcher chickens here. Uh, if you're an agricultural zone, uh, that's for chicken production, not chicken processing. Yeah. But our customers didn't want to process a chicken. No. <laughs> they wanted a chicken they could go and put in the oven. Yeah. And, and so, um, I mean, the, the very first thing I wanted to do was we always milked a couple cows. And I wanted to sell uh, milk to the neighbors. But you can't sell milk. You know, without a uh, without a five hundred thousand dollar facility. Because the thing is that the more you start to sell more than one thing, you're regarded as a Walmart, or as we call it here in this country, yes. a Bunnings. Yes, absolutely. So you're regarded as a huge, huge yeah. retailer. Yeah, because because the regulations aren't aren't scalable. It, mm. It's a one size fits all deal, and so which is geared and and skewed towards very much the top end yes. of the market, the the industrial. Let's face it, the ones with the money, the ones who can lobby, the ones who get the ear of government and politicians. Yes, and so, so what they do is they, they uh, um, use their influence to create the regulations that they can live with, but the competition can't. Mm. Competition being small farms, localized farms, uh, community canneries. Um, anything, uh, anything centralized. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it, well, anything, anything that's 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 localized and and um, and oh, small. Decentralized, I should yeah, say. Yeah, Sorry, it's that, that second yeah, glass yeah, of wine yeah. I had. Yeah. <laughs> no, decentralized. Any, any, yeah, anything that's decentralized. Mm. Um, and and so you know when when they write a regulation that says uh, you need a. You need a 24-7, uh, for example, monitoring thermometer for this particular uh, chicken salad that you're going to make. Mm. Well, that's one thing to buy this uh, $2,000 thermometer if you're making um, if you're making two tons of it at a time. <laughs> but, but yeah, but but it, but if you're making a little bowl of it at mm. a time in your in your little um, on-farm kitchen, mm. then obviously a $2,000 thermometer is inappropriate. Kind of crazy for the economies of scale. Yeah, exactly. And, but that that is the truth behind a lot of the food police policies mm. that create these arbitrary and capricious, and I would even say asinine. Um, requirements for what is actually the antidote of the food nutrition pathogenicity problem which is which is small scale local open source transparent integrity type food systems what problems have we got with the the way that food's produced right now here's a free kick for you yeah there 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 are lots of problems and it, and it's a great question um i think i think one of the first biggest problems is that it is ecologically destructive I mean, when you when you go into an area and you just plant one species, you rip out all the natural diversity. You plant one species, and then you dump petroleum-based chemical fertilizer on it that destroys the earthworms and the soil life, and then you nuke it with pesticides and herbicides. Um, what happens is you are you are destroying 
that the ecology, not to mention, you know, aquifers and, and, and runoff. And of course, in the U.S., you know, we now have a, a, a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. That's before the oil spill. Uh, we haven't Just... even talked about that, have we? <laughs> Jeez, we've talked about a lot of things over lunch. Yeah, my God. <laughs> yeah, but, but, uh, but it, over the years, uh, the, yeah, yeah. The, the runoff from the petroleum based, um, monospeciated, um, Organ ma- organic matter depriving farming methods has um, has created a, a total dead zone the size of Rhode Island, a whole state in in the Gulf of Mexico, and that's that's unsustainable. I mean, we we can't. What what happens when it gets to be the size of Texas and then the size of the continent <laughs> and size size of the West Coast? It should be interesting to note here, folks, that the gentleman who I've been speaking to or I'm speaking to now is also featured in a, a documentary that's out at the moment, which we were saying could become, well, it depends how many people watch it, I suppose, and how much interest there is, the inconvenient truth of food production, Food Inc. Now, you're a part of that, are you not? Yes, we are. We, uh, that The particular year, I think it was uh, maybe three years that they actually came, uh, three years ago, it was in 08, I think, that it was actually uh, filmed. Um, that particular summer, we had, I think, six different video crews coming to the farm to do different projects. And, you know, we always say yes um, uh, because we're, you know, we're very open and transparent. And, you know, sometimes things work out and sometimes they don't. This was just one of six. And obviously it, it had some traction and worked out very well. And it's, um, it's out now, folks. Food Inc. It's uh, at, well, I think limited release would probably be the best way to say it. Um, but it's certainly worth watching. And if you want to be frightened or enlightened, both. A bit of both, isn't it? Because knowledge is power. You've got to know things before you can start to act. And uh, you'll see things that will kind of freak you out. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the two things that I think struck me most about the film, of course, of course, the main thing that strikes me is the number of people who come up to me now and say, well, I saw this and I had no idea. And I've been, I've been preaching this for, you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And, and, you know, where have you been? But, but the fact is that people do come, um, you know, on their own terms. Better late than never. Yep, better yeah. late than never. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so soon old and so late smart. And so uh, so here we are. But the two things that were most um, interesting to me in, in the film were, uh, number one, the um, the, the pureed, uh, ammoniated um, hamburger filler that was pouring out of this big, you know, hamburger piece machine. Yeah. Um, I'd never seen anything like it. Can you explain it more for people? What, what, what's the actual process? What do they do there and why? Uh, well, it, it doesn't actually explain the process, but, but what this is, this is called filler in the industry. And it goes into fast food hamburgers. Mm. And and it's just basically uh, beef parts. It's salvage stuff. And it's, they, it's also known as MRM, isn't it? Me- mechanically recovered meat. Yes, yes. And and what it is is pieces um, that they that they they bleach with ammonia. They spray with ammonia to, in order to um, sanitize it, and then they puree it. It's actually it looks like a slurry, and it comes out of a tube like a like a smoothie, and and pours into concrete boxes, you know, with wax paper in them. And um, and gets frozen and shipped out for uh, 
<laughs> for your patty at your local uh, at your local fast food chain. Food for thought. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's it's an unbelievable uh, uh, picture, and uh, I'm sure if they had the smell with it too, if they could have somehow made the movie with the smells in it, it would have been even more graphic. The other part that I found most uh, <laughs> that I that I give them the greatest kudos for for doing is a little segment, a little clip where they actually have business cards. And they show the revolving door between um, between the corporate, you know, corporate executives and the elite regulators in the different, you know, the Food and Drug Administration, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the uh, the Food Inspection and Safety Service. It's a cozy deal. It, it is very much. It is very much a revolving door of fraternity. Yeah. And, and when people sit around and wonder, well, you know, why doesn't somebody do about this? Well, the reason is because it, it's the the same people are on the inside that are on the outside, and they're just revolving door moving you know moving back and forth it's quite dramatic the legislators are trapped by the by the big interest and the amount of money that they bring to the table if i'm going to paraphrase yeah oh absolutely and you know when you consider that there are some what uh 30 multinational corporations now that have a larger budget than half of all the world's countries Mm. these are big powerful interests and the only way that really i gotta say joel the only way that really change is going to happen and it's just the nature of human business is that you need a catastrophe, a cataclysm, because what we're finding out now, it's interesting you talk about the Gulf of Mexico with just the millions of litres of oil, gallons of oil, that just get, are being pumped in. Was the cosy relationship between the regulators and the producers of the oil, correct? Yes, that is correct. And that is why, that is why my message is forget all of them. All right. Forget all of them. They're gone. Yeah, forget yeah. them. Forget them. And just and just each of us individually. Let's take let's take charge of our own three trillion member internal community. You know, each of us has th- a community of three trillion bacteria inside of us that that wants to be fed every day. In our flora. Yeah. In our our flora and fauna. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And so and so nobody is sitting here holding a gun to your head saying you have to buy that processed food or that high fructose corn syrup or that fast food hamburger. You know, we we have never spent more money remodeling or gadgetizing our kitchens. Um, we need to rediscover those kitchens and, and spend as much time in them as you spend uh, sitting in front of the television or or reading People magazine to find out how many uh, parts uh, Britney Spears has pierced recently. Hey, who knows? <laughs> All right, here's a case in point. Schlosser, one of the um, co-authors of the movie. Yes. Eric Schlosser, uh, author of Fast Food Nation, a time that uh, everybody should have a look at. Mm-hmm. They went to the Department of Agriculture and they had a meeting with the Secretary of the Department of Agriculture. They showed the film and it's all compelling Mm -hmm. because it's a very well-made film. Mm -hmm. And they said, what do you think? And this is the telling thing for me, folks, was the Secretary of the Department of Agriculture said, make us. Is that correct? <laughs> well, I, I'm not familiar. Make us change. No, it was in a, in a quote okay. from here somewhere. It was like, okay. we, we, yeah. we need to be, we're going to have the agitation because the status quo yeah. is pretty well, cozy. We're going to simply respond to the politics of the situation. Yeah. And, and that's why I'm telling people, you know, the only... The, You're saying, if I'm going to paraphrase, change has to come from within. Change has to come from, from yeah. us individually. The only thing, actually, the only thing that's more powerful than the, um, the, than the, the global corporate interests is you. Me? Yes. Hey. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, and the I'm, listener, I'm, that's, that's you out there too, yeah, folks. I'm, I'm pointing through the radio. You yeah. out there. Yeah. I'm pointing through the radio saying yeah. you. Yeah. And, 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 and when you come to me and say, 
but but I I can't help but buy the frozen DiGiorno's pizza at the mm. supermarket. You know what you're doing is you're disempowering yourself. Absolutely. And you yeah. are abdicating your responsibility for your three trillion member internal community that's begging to be fed mm. with historical integrity. Well, dare I say it? I mean, we've been talking about this a bit on the show over the years, and I've actually said through the past, and it's not an original thought, it actually comes from Cherry Ripe from a book called Goodbye Culinary Cringe, where she says that cooking has almost become a political act. The ability to cook, the ability to make the decisions, the ability to circumvent large multinational food corporations is almost a political act in these days. Absolutely. The, the single most, uh, The single most important... Uh, decision that a person can make is to simply pull the funding, pull your personal funding yeah. out of out of these uh, outfits. Don't sit here and just and complain about them and do nothing. Don't sit and just ex- expect the government to do everything because mm-hmm. they're cozy with the government. Yeah. You you just realize the power of one plus one plus yeah. one. Awesome. And if we withdraw, if we withdraw our patronage dollars, mm. um, they will cease to exist by default. All right. So, how do we start pulling those dollars away from? Because we've got a, we've got a problem here in this country. One of the main problems that I think that we have, Joel, is the fact that the people that we buy our food from, the supermarkets, are controlled by a duopoly. There's only two real players. Oh, there's a little one, a little sort of strange European one that sells strange cornflakes and things like that. But the main majority of things comes from a duopoly. Well, so so um, don't go to the supermarket either. I mean, unless you want toilet paper and Kleenex, maybe. Yeah, but 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 in, in general, in general, um, buy unprocessed. That's the first thing. Yes. So, so, so get so get unprocessed. You can at least do unprocessed food. Mm-hmm. Uh, then at least you're not patronizing the the uh, the system that fills our food with things that we can't pronounce, can't make in the kitchen, and won't rot. And doesn't have a whole bunch of numbers after it. And doesn't have to. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, I mean, yeah. I mean, what's the general rule? You shouldn't buy anything that has more than like six ingredients in it. Yeah. If you can't pronounce it, don't buy it. All right. So, so, so start getting unprocessed, and then, and then just rediscover the sheer um, delight of culinary, domestic culinary arts. Mm. Uh, you, you know, we're we're interested in, uh, um, we're interested in so many things um, that that were that are less important. Then what becomes flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, mm. uh, our, our internal fuel. I mean, most people are more concerned about the quality of gasoline they put in their car than the quality of food they put in their bodies. You are, aren't are you, though, folks, because you are listeners to this show. Well, let's hope not that you're not more into the octane rating than <laughs> what a beautiful fresh apple tastes like. Yeah, he's an engaging sort of guy, Joel Salatin. We've got more of that interview coming up. We just thought we'd take a quick break there to uh, squeeze in some music. Why not? I'm just going to lean over here and hit space on my iTunes. A bit hard running solo, isn't it? And it's about quarter to one here on Triple R. Eat it is the name of the uh, program you're listening to. Matt Stedman driving the bus on my own today. God help us all. Anyway, let's jump back into the time machine and just uh, continue that extended chat that we had with Joel Salatin. Let's talk about paradigms because there was an interesting you thought you brought up about the ebb and flow of life, and I think we're hopefully we're at the the end of a paradigm. Can you want to elaborate a bit on that? Well, sure. the the The, the paradigm that we've been under for the last uh, few decades, um, you know, came out as a result of the the industrialization movement mm-hmm. of, of the you know nineteen nineteen hundred to nineteen thirty or so. 
um, as we left the agrarian economy. And uh, what happened was that we, we came into the age of, of chemicals uh, and petroleum uh, during that time. And um, now that age of petroleum and chemicals is beginning to run its course. Yeah, I think it was starting, it's, it's, it's starting to wane, isn't it? Sure it is. It has to. We can't get the kicks anymore. We're getting inundated with you know, bugs and disease and pathogens and things, all these new you know, E. coli, salmonella, listeria, these, these Latin... Bovine spongiform encephalopathy. I could never say encephalopathy. Yeah, encephalopathy. Yeah. Yes. Encephalopathy, that's yeah. right. Uh, avian influenza. What, yeah. these, what these are, these, these are nature's language. Um, screaming to us, enough! You know, you've raped us enough. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, can you take off your conquistador hat? And so, as we move from the agrarian to the industrial to the information, and now we're moving into the regenerative economy, and that's what. And that's, that's the first what, time I've ever heard that. Yes. The regenerative economy. Regenerative economy. That's going to be. Right. That's going to be the the Gen Y, the Gen Y mantra that is is about recycling, regeneration, composting, rebuilding, yeah. re- realizing that resources are not infinite. We have to reuse those, repackage them over and over again, and so. As we enter this this kind of hockey stick time, you know, you know, where where is it hockey? Oh, the J curve. All, all the all the J curve. Thing. So as we enter into that, yeah, yeah, in, into this. The one thing that you know about a hockey stick is uh, a, a J a J curve is that it can't go on forever. And so, since there are so many of them converging on many you know levels, finance, energy, uh, different things, yeah. then obviously there's going to have to be a, a major change in our in our cultural paradigm, and it's going to be the regenerative. Uh, mandate of of healing, and yeah, and yeah. so it's a, it's a it's actually a very exciting time to be alive. Now the question is, right now, the people who are wanting mandatory irradiation and genetic modification and that they they think that that's going to be the answer. Well, that just makes money. Yeah, <laughs> well, it makes money for them. Yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. But but but. Um, I, radiation is a radiation still on the menu oh, in absolutely. America? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, Dairy Dairy Queen, uh, Dairy Queen irradiates all their burgers. God, because we managed to. That was one thing where I thought we were kind of enlightened. That we said, "Now, nah, well, we're not going to do that. We've we've embraced the whole GMO thing, yeah, uh, well, mainly through canola, though." Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you know, they don't call it irradiation; they call it cold pasteurization. Cold pasteurization. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, hey, all Willian sort of things. <laughs> hey, these, these these companies don't hire the best wordsmiths out of college for nothing. They eh? cold pasteurization. Yeah, cold pasteurization. Sounds so benign, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It sounds uh, it sounds wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So so the the point is that um, they're winning at the moment. I would say, yeah, yeah. perhaps they're winning. But, but but our our side is also becoming more, more and more astute, and we're getting and we're getting much more science on our side. Uh, mm. the, the better we can measure, um, you know, measure problems, uh, we're able to um, to bring more science to the equation. So empirical assessment could yeah. actually save us a bit. No, absolutely. I mean, well, we, it has to, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, well, we we can now we can now measure, for example, you know, conjugated linoleic acid. We can measure omega three. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's CLA? That's an important thing, isn't it? CLA. Yes, it is. It's the number one anti carcinogen. In, Where in is the world. it? Where do we find it? Uh, we find it in in uh, fish, cod liver oil, and grass finished herbivores, dairy and beef, and and um, mm. all it takes is fourteen days of grain feeding to shove it pretty much all out of the body of an herbivore. 
and and we're able because of this empirical measurement we can actually yeah. say this is a fact exactly i mean th- this is this is why in argentina for example where the per capita consumption of red meat is double what it is in the usa and perhaps australia mm. um they have half the colon cancer rate because all of their beef is grass finished and has these high levels of conjugated linoleic acid in it. Wow! I mean, they 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 average a pound per person per day. What? You? Yeah, you that's crazy. A pound? Wow, that's a lot of meat. So, um, so you got to realize if if you miss a day, you got to really make up for lost time. <laughs> <laughs> the cows are nervous over there. I tell you. So, um. How do you see Australia, because this is, uh, I think, your second time that you've been here. How does Australia compare to America in the regard to the agricultural-industrial complex? Food is industry, I suppose. Yeah, well, I, th- I think I think Australia is probably closer to the U.S. than any other country in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I think partly because partly because we share a, a, almost a common um, a common age. Mm-hmm. Uh, our cultures were started around the same time or about the same age. Had no peasant culture. Had no peasant culture mm-hmm. and um, um, dis- destroyed its indigenous um, peoples. Yeah. Um, well, not total destroyed, but you know what I'm saying. Subjugated. Yeah, w- w- went after them, called them barbarians, yeah. and that they weren't worth living. Right. And and so you know we have, we have a very common um, – I mean we, we're both uh, descend from English – you know, British type uh, ancestry. So, I mean, there's a lot of commonality here. And, um, you know, if, if Australia is. Same amount of obesity. <laughs> is there? Uh, there I, is. I, I, actually, do you know, Joel, I think that we've actually overtaken Americans as being more obese. Really? Yeah, I think so. Huh. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. Close second, anyway. Huh. Yeah. Um, so, there's a, there's a. If there is dissimilarity, um, it. It's certainly not as much as the similarity. Yeah. Let's put it that way, yeah, right. and and so um, you know, I, I think a lot of the same problems. I mean, we're we're, we're seeing desertification. We're seeing uh, depletion of organic matter. We're seeing you know ecological um, you know, devastation. Um, the nutrient components of foods, whether it's the CLA that we mentioned or omega-3, omega-6 ratios or riboflavin or these other things, mm-hmm. I'm sure Australia is seeing ADD and, and um, you know, hyperactive children, which is part of B vitamins, that again, it's the salad bar in animals, in, in chickens and pigs and, and beef. It's the, it's the green, it's the green salad bar mm-hmm. component mm-hmm. that, that drives the, um, you know, that drives the, the B vitamin complex, the, the carotenes, yep. and so um, so when you when you pull the animals off of the pasture and you can find them in factories where they don't get sunshine and fresh air and all they get is high energy uh, grains. Um, well, it, I think one of the problems is that they've, they've ceased to be regarded as animals. And as you were saying, I'm just quoting from you, in the, in the hubris of the, the agricultural industry, they're just regarded as um, bits of protoplasm that can be manipulated. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I call it uh, – they're, they're just regarded as uh, inanimate protoplasmic, um, protoplasmic structure to be manipulated, however cleverly hubris can imagine to manipulate it. That's and, you know, when we view life from that kind of arrogant, manipulative, disrespective uh, way, mm. um, we, a culture that views its life from that perspective will begin viewing its citizens the same way. 
and, and other cultures the same way. Mm. So actually, the way we regard our biological, um, our, 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 our ecological umbilical, if you will, the way we regard that uh, creates a, a, a moral and ethical dimension um, around our around our cultural ethos, our, our whole perspective. Uh, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to teach your kids to love, honor, and respect, you know, the Thomas of Tom and the Mariness of Mary when we don't respect the pigness of the pig. Yeah, it's, it's a, and it gets back to that other sort of, that, uh, not euphemism, aphorism, you are what you eat. Yes, yes, yeah, you are what you eat. And, and unfortunately, we are becoming what we are eating. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. uh, in a very visceral way. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, if we're, if we're eating things, um, that are produced and processed in ways that are not, um, uh, are not fun to be around, well, then we're producing people that aren't fun to be around. You know, our, 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 our farms and our ranches and our, um, processing facilities should be aesthetically and aromatically sensually romantic. No. Well, that'd be nice. I don't know. I haven't seen too many. Um, you go in the stables; they can be pretty aromatic. I don't know about aromatic, really romantic. Um, well, you know, with with the proper management, it's also romantic. It, it ain't yes, so it bad. Is. It ain't so bad. All right. So, what can one person do again? Uh, what one person can do is is decide to take charge of your of your food system. And that means you may rediscover your kitchen. Mm. Um, you you will have to put more value on food. You might have to forego uh, a, a movie night once in a while mm. um, in order to have the time and money to invest in in your in, in the flesh of your flesh and the bone of your bone. And and mm. what you know, I, I investing in your grandchildren's clean air, water, and soil, your grandchildren's economy, ecology, and your own health. What can be more valuable than that? And say not much, not much. Tell me before we let you go. You're in the bosom of the family. You're back home in the in the Shenandoah Valley, in Stoop, Virginia, near Staunton, the big town. What sort of stuff do you like? If you're going to have the food around the table, what would be your, your perfect meal with the family? Oh, uh, one of our perfect meals is um, is uh, pork tenderloin yeah. fillets yeah. and um, mashed potatoes. And gravy and green beans with Virginia um, cured uh, ham hocks and oh. and uh, uh, bacon pieces, you know, yeah, in that you can see. Yes, that you can see and <laughs> yeah. eat pieces of um, on that on, on those bacon bits and homemade applesauce uh, right from the trees. Mm. Uh, that's just and, and sweet pickles. Uh, uh, sweet pickles <laughs> very important. <laughs> Don't forget sweet pickles. <laughs> and maybe and maybe a glass of uh, of, of hard cider. Ooh, yeah, going hard. That that's uh, that's a real Virginia meal. Has that got bubbles in it, or is it still? Uh, it's still. It's a still cider. It's what we would call in this country scrumpy. Uh scrumpy. Okay, yeah, sounds well, good to me. We do that sort of stuff. <laughs> well, good on you, mate. As we would say, from an Aussie to um, an American who's been, um, let's face it, an inspiration. It's it's great that you're around. May you continue on, and may your sons continue on. Your son continue on what you've been doing. And uh, we, we should get people to see Food Inc. in the in the meantime, shouldn't we? Yeah, yes, we should. Everybody should see this. It, it it's an it's an epiphany. If you've never seen anything like it, it's an epiphany. And it's just wonderful to be here in Australia with uh, Cam and everybody here. That's been so gracious. It's been wonderful. You are gracious yourself, sir. And um, we haven't given you a bit of promotion. Um, Joel has written um, uh, quite a few books. One of my favourite, which uh, is called Everything I Want to Do Is Illegal. 
What's the next one's coming out? It was a, a, a extension on that. It's the sheer ecstasy of being a lunatic farmer. A lunatic farmer. And don't forget, you can look up uh, Joel's farm and see what's happening on Polyface. Just uh, Google Polyface Farms. It'll pop, pop right up. Been lovely um, breaking bread with you, Joel, and, and meeting you. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, we are out of time. That was Joel Salatin uh, talking to Cam Smith a couple of years ago. But look, as um, as Cam said, you can, and as Joel said, you can Google Polyface Farms or even just Google Joel Salatin if you want any more information. We think he's a man with some very important ideas and uh, he's very good at communicating them as well. So thanks to Joel for his time and also thanks to John for the report earlier in the show. I've got to go over time. It's the download up next with Anne, Kate and Geraldine and uh, stay tuned to Triple R for the rest of the afternoon. See you next week. Bye. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.